Well, this week I was reflecting, and I have had quite a few different jobs over the years, and I guess I'm just getting started. Some of you students are entering the workforce, learning what that's all about, and you're learning something about bosses. Now, understanding your boss may be the most important factor to staying hired and doing well at your job. Uh, Critically important there. Now, as you find out in a job, who you answer to is a little bit uh, murky, right? Now, there's always someone that is very important to please. It might be the president of the company, but he might not care. It might be a direct supervisor. It may just be a senior employee that you really need if you're going to do your job well. And so you want to get along with those people. So when we take a job, we look for the person with the most power, the most authority, and we do our best to make them happy. Why? Well, because if we have a good relationship with them, chances are the job's going to be just fine. Now, in English, we have a word for treating someone as weighty or important. We never use it this way, but it's what the word means, and it is the word worship. Okay? So, generally, we reserve the word worship to a religious sense, but every now and then it it creeps out. We talk about hero worship, worshiping a phone or something that we love, a car, maybe worshiping a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? What's going on there? Well, typically, we use that in a little bit of a derisive sense that someone has become preoccupied with something, right? They just worship him. They just worship her. Okay, we get the idea. Um, But... What is true is there is something ultimate in your life and that because you've given that thing, that person, that idea, massive weight, massive significance, it tends to influence all of your decisions, all of your choices, especially if there's a conflict, okay? We see this in life, right? In a job, it looks like this. You are balancing what your boss wants, what the customer wants, and what you want, right? When all of those things align, it's an easy day. When there's conflict between those things, we have some hard choices to make. But what you value most determines who wins in that equation, right? You say in a family, it looks a little different. There might be tension between a spouse, the kids, and you, right? Because what's going on there? People want different things, and what you worship determines very much what gets the priority. Do you throw your weight around, or you bend to somebody else's Desire. Well, that's an interesting question. These power dynamics make up in many ways how successful you are in life. Without a doubt, being successful involves keeping the main thing the main thing. Now, my point is not to talk to you about work. That's just illustrative of where we're going. And I wanted to go through Psalm 81. Now, if you were with us a couple Wednesday nights back, we went through the entirety of this psalm. That's not my purpose today, but there is some imagery here that we want to grab. So we're going to handle this somewhat devotionally. We're going to grab some topics out of this text, but we're going to let the text guide us, okay? Psalm 81, as you're turning, this is a psalm of Asaph. He was one of the worship leaders in Israel. An astute understanding of human nature and how things work. He writes for us in verse 1, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre, with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, 
and on our feast day. For it is a statute in Israel and a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Jacob. And he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved the shoulder of your burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder and tested you at the waters of Meribah. Let's pray and we will consider this text. Father, truly, what we deem as most important, what we worship dictates the outcome of our lives. It is not a small thing. Father, we have worshipped, we have sung, we have seen in your word that you are all supreme. And our very happiness, our joy, and our satisfaction are bound up in following you well. But Father, I would be the first to admit, as would my brothers and sisters here, that that is often very, very difficult. And Lord, we further admit every time we've wandered from you, we've regretted it. It has caused pain, it has caused brokenness. So Father, would you teach our hearts afresh? May we be captivated by your love. May we trust in your power. May we follow you with fearless faith, knowing your goodness, your kindness to us. Father, would you teach us these things in this hour? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, our study this year, as you know, there's a banner on the wall and whatnot, is Meet the Family, which has been a large catch-all for trying to understand what God is like what we're called to as being this new people of God, this family of God, and what on earth God wants us to do. Now, we are deep in that study. It is the beginning of November. But I feel in my spirit, every time we push on what God is asking us to do, we lose sight of the goodness of God, and we just get very, very tired. We get overwhelmed because change is hard. That's true of everything. Right? Like remembering to floss at night to learning a new job. Change is just hard. And sometimes when we've looked at the applications of the gospel and how we, we start living in the service of other people and showing our, the world what God is like, we get the wrong idea. And we, we roll back into serving in our own strength. We bring a lot of guilt. We bring a lot of shame. We bring a lot of flesh and selfishness back to that equation. And it's dangerous, okay? So from time to time, I like to pull back and try to reorient our eyes on God himself. It is life-giving, and it makes all the other things make sense. So that's our goal today, all right? We want to get sight of God and the gospel and what he wants us to do, right? But the good news is if you can see God clearly, you can change. And you can thrive with him on mission. So our title for today is Making the Lord Your God. Right? That is not a foregone conclusion. Now, when God created the world, it's so important that we keep this in mind, that there was a perfect balance. We talk about this all the time, but I'd like to consider a different angle. When God created people, they were perfectly loved by him. You say, well, what did that look like? Well, imagine this. Imagine God creates man and woman, and he gives them work to do. Work was meaningful. Work was valuable. And it was fun. Right? Can you imagine this as your job description? All right. You live in a garden. Your job 
is to make it beautiful. There are no weeds. There are no thorns. You arrange the plants. You prune the trees. Make the garden beautiful and enjoy it. That's your job. Make the world beautiful in any way you see fit. And because man and woman were perfect, they could trust their heart. And so they, they went out designing a beautiful space to the glory of God and just enjoying every moment of it. And they were given a perfect marriage. Right? With this command, enjoy your wife and start an amazing family. That's great. That's amazing. And by the way, the world is a perfectly safe place. None of the animals will harm you. None of the people will harm you. And I will never harm you, says God. And so in the cool of the day, I will walk with you and you can tell me what you're enjoying and what new wonders the world is producing. You just tell me how you're enjoying the garden and what you're doing to make it beautiful. And I will encourage your heart and I will walk with you. That's beautiful. That's what God designed the world to be as a haven for his co-creators, these incredibly creative people called humans. Designed to create culture, to make beautiful things, to make music, to make art, to make machines, to make the world beautiful and vibrant. Well, something else was true. When we were loved by God like that, we were free to love other people, right? How would you live if you weren't afraid of anyone hurting you ever? If you couldn't even imagine someone betraying you? If whenever somebody offered you help, you knew they meant it and they weren't belittling you? What would you think, right, about being able to serve other people, to offer them your help and never being rebuffed, never being questioned? Everybody's impulse and motive was pure. Can you imagine? Actually, that, that, that takes a lot of creativity, and I never quite get there. But you know when you're in a space amongst friends and everyone relaxes? You know that feeling? And there are parts of your personality that nobody ever gets to see, but they come out. You know the quirky ones, right? And you can say things, even dumb things, and people will enjoy your company just because of who you are. That's about as close as we get in this place. But even amongst that circle of friends, we occasionally hurt each other. Just who we are. But back in the beginning, that was not true. Can you imagine the kind of marriage you would enjoy if you never had to worry about somebody harming you? To be able to enjoy creation without worrying about, I don't know, killer storms or wild beasts? It'd be amazing. You would just explore the world and every day would be filled with wonder. And it would be great. Well, something happened. There was a terrible lie. Terrible lie. In our text, in Psalm 81, it says, Hear, O my people, well, I admonish or warn you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, that there would be no strange gods among you. Do not bow down to a foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But the psalmist says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So something terrible happened. I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Now, this is poetic, and this is talking about Israel, so we're kind of looking back to the deliverance from Egypt. But to understand what went wrong, we need to go back even a step farther to the garden. That would be Genesis 3. So here our first parents are enjoying a perfect world, perfect relationships with God and with each other, and man, every day is just wonderful. And the serpent comes, says, hey, tell me about this garden. 
I said, oh, it's amazing. I love being here. What about the tree over there? Oh, well, that's the only tree that God doesn't want us to have anything to do with. It's the tree of the garden of good and evil. Okay? What did God say about that? Well, he said we can't eat of it or touch it lest we die. And the serpent replies, you won't die. It's a lie. You won't die. In fact, that tree, right? That tree, if you take of its fruit, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. Pick up our reading. God knows when you you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the woman saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eye. The tree was desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit, gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of them were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There is so much happening in those few verses. Those lies run deep and they are behind almost all of the misery in your life right now. Can we walk through them? Lie number one, you are what you do. What you are defines you. The snake says, if you do something, you'll be like God. He was also saying, through your strength, through your choices, you can make a world better than God has given you. But what happened? Well, Eve believed that lie. She saw something forbidden. She thought, if I take that, I will actually make my life even better than God's ideas. And so she did. And what did she gain? Well, she exercised her will that was hers by God. She exercised total personal freedom. And instead of becoming like God, what happened? The image of God was marred. Almost completely ruined. What did she earn for her freedom, her choice? Well, she earned guilt and shame. And sin and death, they weren't like God at all. They died that day. Everything good and wholesome and beautiful that God worked into his creation started to unravel. And you notice what happens immediately. They eat the fruit, they look down, and they're naked. Clothing's never been invented. There's not a single animal creature on the planet that wears clothing. So what's behind the word naked? All of a sudden, they looked down at their bodies, they looked at each other, and they felt shame in a perfect marriage. But you know all about that, don't you? You look in the mirror, and you think to yourself, I am not enough. I will put on makeup. I will comb this crazy hair. I will put on clothing to present myself in such a way. I will pretend to be something so people will like me because if they ever know the truth, they will push me away. And you know what? That line of thinking is not wholly wrong because you've lived long enough on the sin-cursed planet that when you are honest and you express yourself, people tend to shame you. So there's a voice in your head that says, keep your armor up, go out there and be awesome and prove to them that you're worth something. Well, that's fine as far as it goes, but it's a lie, Right? Because if you try to prove your worth by what you do, what happens? Well, one of two things. Either you're really good and you become proud and arrogant and you hurt a lot of people and you end up empty. Or you try very hard and you fail at what the world says is important and you feel like trash. 
In either of these scenarios, do you become like God? The answer is no. The answer is that the shame persists, so we hide and we try to prove ourselves to ourselves and to everyone else. And that is why we spend so much money on our homes and our cars. We take too much time at work. We go on lavish vacations, but that's not enough. We take lots of pictures to show to our friends, to show that our life is successful. We're doing big, enjoyable things. If we're not showing off, we're at least trying to prove we're significant. Our lives matter. But that is exhausting. And when you wake up in the mirror, that voice is still there. Isn't it? Shame still whispers. You're on the top of your game. You've gotten promoted. You've gotten the job you've always wanted. And you realize it doesn't satisfy. And people still suspect that you're not worth it. You still have something to prove. And you give your whole life to that. And then what happens? You, you crest that hill and your body starts to decline. And now you panic. You've always been defined. What you can do with your hands. And you cans don't do what they used to do. Your feet don't do what they used to do. And now you have no identity. You are what you do is a terrible lie because as soon as you're not the most beautiful one, the not the smartest one, not the strongest one, all of a sudden, who are you? It was a terrible lie. It was not how God views you and I. And living that way has brought so much misery. There's another one. What happens here, right, We're trying to find meaning by what we do. We become a slave to those things. And so we say, well, the best I can do, I guess, is to listen to my heart. That's like every Disney movie ever made. You listen to your heart, you will find your true, authentic self. And don't listen to anyone else. Talking to you students. Because nobody else knows. Your parents don't know. Your boss doesn't know. Only you know who you're supposed to be. Okay. Have you ever noticed something that it's a really bad idea to go to a grocery store when you're hungry? You've done that? What Stuff just starts filling up your cart, doesn't it? Really healthy things like kale, right? No! All kinds of things in shiny packages, typically with lots and lots of chocolate chips, end up in your cart. Unapologetically! Why? What's going on there? Well, when you're hungry, you shop for the craziest stuff. The problem is your hunger doesn't know how to be satisfied well. Your brain has become subservient to your stomach. And your stomach is not the smartest part of your body, okay? It's got to tell you that. So here you are rolling through the aisles and said, that sounds good. Hey, can I tell you something? If you're listening to your heart, you will only be the worst version of yourself. Why? Because there's a lot of voices competing in there. Personally, I would love to be rich, famous, and successful, and I would also like to sit on my couch all day and watch TV. So which one of those wins? Typically a little of both. I start well, and then I get lazy. You know what that's a recipe for? Disaster. Disaster. Okay, some people, the rare individuals on us, they, they overcome this sort of schizophrenic tendency Right? So they're not mediocre. They are excellent. What happens to them? They obsess. Right? The truly excellent people in our culture, what happened to them? They've decided that being the world's greatest chef is everything. And they give their lives to it. And then what happens? Have you read their biographies? What happens to everything else in life? They tend to lose something called balance. 
and they lose their families and they lose their homes and they realize it's lonely at the top. Right? Isn't that what happens? Our culture assumes that if you listen to your heart, it will lead you to your most authentic self because only you know what you are made to be. But your heart has competing desires and they are all selfish. I'd like to give you a quote from uh, a man that's passed away, but he was he taught philosophy and religion. He said, because of our present thought, uh, uh, the world, the horror of sin is hidden as a condition of the human self, and it is not available as a principle of explanation for those who are supposed to know why life goes as it does and as a guide to others. And we can't see what the problem really is. For example, why do half of Americans' marriages fail? And why do we have massive problems with substance addiction and with the moral failure of public leaders? And those who are supposed to know are lost in speculation about the causes when the real source of our failure lies in the choices and the factors at work in it. Choice is where sin dwells. That's a fascinating idea. Where is sin dwelling? In the fact that you think you have a choice to live your life any way you want. Where's the sin? Well, in marriage, it's thinking I have a choice. I have my rights and I can stay here or not. Really? That's how God designed the world, right? I can respect my boss or not. I can feed my body well or not. See, choice is a powerful thing. God gave you freedom and God will let you ruin your life. You will do that exactly in his perfect plan. You will not mess up his world at all. But you'll be all the worse for it. Choice is a dangerous thing driven by a heart that is fueled by perpetual selfishness. Nothing good comes out of that. Does it feel authentic? I don't know. Yes. But because we always think of us, we get what we want and we're not satisfied. Have you ever noticed this? People are built for community, but our selfishness drives people away. And then we're lonely and wonder why nobody comes to visit us. And yet, Scripture insists it's more blessed to give than receive. And we know that kind of in our brains, but we don't live that way. Because my instincts, your instincts, are inherently selfish. And we're just so busy saying, well, if I can get more stuff, I'll be happier. And it's a lie. It's stupidity. I know so much better. And I struggle to live that. I'm guessing you do too. What's going on? Don't trust your heart. The irony of what Dallas Willard said is we can't see it. We're saying, wow, I wonder why I can never hold a job. I wonder why people don't like me, right? I wonder why my family doesn't hang out with me. And we never realize it's my choices that are primarily responsible for my misery. I'm not saying people don't sin against you. Of course they do. This is a very broken world. A lot of suffering does happen, but our suffering is made so much worse by us asking the wrong questions. How did I get here? It had to do with your heart and you're trusting your heart rather than what God said to do. Let's talk about dogs. I have a dog, Lab. She's six months old. Dogs are not the smartest creatures on the planet. If we were to let our dog 
go anywhere she wanted. She would eat highly questionable food. She would wander who knows where, and she would have a preoccupation with greeting cars in the highway. I've watched her do that. It was scary. Our dog is happiest when she is cared for and subservient to us. We feed her, we protect her, we love her, we make sure that she's warm. We are very good masters and she is a very good dog and we love her. If she were on her own, she would be a disaster, right? Puppies are just wired that way. Well, fortunately dogs are easier to train than people, but what makes us so vulnerable to these lies? Well, we believe this as well. I think I'm missing a slide there. We are living for pleasure, and we believe that that will make us happy. Now, we all want to be happy. I mean, I don't know of anyone that doesn't want to be happy. But if you pursue happiness as your goal, what happens? You never get there. That's one of those weird paradoxes. You'll never ultimately be satisfied. You'll keep getting what you want, but it'll keep end up empty, and you'll have to go deeper and deeper and deeper in that quest to be happy, right? One vacation just won't cut it, and you'll be lethargic and antsy or eating. Why does this happen? Well, because when we're living for pleasure, hoping it will bring happiness, you never make the sacrifices uh, needed to live a satisfying life. Once again, Dallas Willard, I'm giving you these quotes because they're just really good and he's a little wordy, all right? It turns out that sensuality cannot be satisfied. Whoa! Living for your pleasures never leads to satisfaction. Why not? Because it's not self-limiting. That's partly because of the effect of engaging in practices of sensuality. It leads to a deadened feeling then awakens the relentless drive, the desperate need simply to feel, to feel something. You know what he's saying? Your body has this tendency called homeostasis. So no matter how much stimulation you're getting it, giving it, your body just says, well, that's normal, and creates like the flat. So you have to be, you need a bigger buzz to feel anything. And eventually, there's so much stimulation, we feel flat, we feel dead. And then we're just desperate to feel anything. So he says, if you give yourself to pleasure, then you're in trouble because eventually um, you can't feel anything at all. It's a little bit, it's a little bit like eating potato chips, right? The saying is you can only, you can't eat just one. Did you know, flip over any bag of chips, typically about one chip is one gram of fat. Did you know that? because they cook them in oil, right? And yet my body will tell me it is just fine to devour an entire bag. And it doesn't matter if it says family size on the front, right? I'm eating for 12. Um, don't look at me that way. I just can't gain weight, okay? I try to be careful. But you see what, what's going on there is you, you eat the chip and it's kind of salty and kind of satisfying and you just keep eating and eating and eating and your body is full. It just doesn't know it. And you've consumed something like 120 or 200 grams of fat in your stomach. You haven't even digested it. And your body still says, I think I'd like something else. You're eating yourself to death is what you're doing. Please don't do that. Okay? Please don't do that. But my point is not to lecture you on um, diet. That's not the point. 
No, no, no. It turns out you discover happiness and satisfaction as you live a meaningful, self-sacrificial life for God and others. You see, you encounter happiness along the way because that's the way God designed the universe. You serve God and others, and what happens is you, you live a life of rich community and fulfillment. Your heart is lying to you. It just says, well, if you would just pursue happiness directly, you'd be happier. No, you won't. You'll be empty. You'll hurt yourself. You'll hurt other people, right? But you will encounter happiness along the way, and your goals will allow you to make hard choices that may even be painful in the short term. Now, these are the terrible lie, all right? All of this comes out of Eden. It all comes out of Genesis 3. But our time is getting away from us. We need hope, okay? I didn't come here to make you feel bad. You know all of these things. You lived all of them. I did. We want hope. So we need a way back. The only way to live a satisfying, fulfilling life is to let God be God of your life. Oh, no, we get like crazy uncomfortable with that concept because we're Americans and I need my freedom above everything else. Americans are probably the only people on the planet that value our freedom to kill ourselves. That's kind of macabre, I'm sorry. But we're like, don't, don't tell me how to eat. Don't tell me how to drive. Don't tell me I need a helmet. Okay, I, I understand the libertarian argument. I completely do. But what are you arguing for? Don't tell me to be safe. We go 85 miles an hour on this motorcycle, right? What could go wrong? Okay? My, my point is not political, okay? Because the government gets a great deal of things wrong, both parties, okay? And all the other sub-parties as well. That's not my point. It's just we like independence even if somebody's offering us very good advice. Can we just accept that? And so what is God? Well, the dictionary defines God, at least in a monotheistic sense, as the creator of the universe, the source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And so if there's a God, the only thing in the world that makes sense is to serve him, right? Without conditions, without our big ideas, right? To serve him with your whole life. Because God designed you and loves you and knows all things and has all the power and has complete control. So does it make sense for you to go to God and say, God, I've got an idea. I've got a great idea. And if you would just do this for me, everything would be great. You've lost your mind. It's like starting a new job. Have you done this? Start a new job, you don't know anything. I've worked some jobs that would kill you if you did them wrong, okay? I've worked jobs, I've been sent on jobs where I didn't actually know what I was doing. My job was to drive and to get on the phone with our senior engineer and say, tell me what to do. And he would ask, what are you seeing? And I would tell him, and he would tell me what to do, and I would just put the things together. I was a, I was a robot. I was quite a happy robot. Because if it was up to me, what would happen? Well, I might die, or I might burn down that office. You get the idea. In your life, we have this beautiful, precious thing called life. We are infinitely creative. God has given you gifts and talents and abilities. And we have the audacity to say, God, I've got a really great idea like the two-year-old deciding how to run the family. Not a good idea. Not, not a good idea. Right? In our text, verse 13, it says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways, and I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes, and those that hate the Lord would cringe towards him and their fate would last forever, but he would free you and feed you with the finest of wheat and honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. In the kindness of God, he's saying, my kids, 
my son, my daughter, don't you understand? I have your absolute best in mind. I want what you want. I want to satisfy you. But you have to trust me. Now, you knew that before you came here. The problem is, we're really bad at that. We're really bad at trusting that God can satisfy our hearts, and we're really good at trusting our own hearts, even though our track record is terrible. Briefly, how do we fix that? You receive God's love. See, here's what God did. God knew we wandered away from him. He knew we lived, loved our independence, and he knew we'd kill ourselves. He knew all of that. So he chased after us in love. Some of you, he's still pursuing saying, I'm a good God. You need to trust me more than your own stinking heart. And I'm doing this. He's coming as the jilted lover, the rejected creator, and yet he is coming and pursuing after you, saying, I'm the only one who is safe to give your life to. And he displays that every day. The sun comes up. You have breath in your lungs. You know, if God stopped thinking about you, you would just cease to exist. The fact that you're here living your independent life is proof that God is good and kind and patient. Oh, so he pursues us in love. And when you come to know him and you're rescued by Jesus every day, he just pours his mercy and grace on your life. Yes, he occasionally, because he's a good father, says, I need you to follow me here or there. But he will demonstrate his love 10,000 times every day. Perhaps every moment. What happens? Well, we learn to love God as God. You see, when God's love comes into our life at first, we're all broken. And like, you know what, God? I'm pretty sure I've made a mess here and I don't think I can fix it. Would you mind? Would you mind fixing my life? And what we mean by that is I had my plans that got kind of messed up. If you would just step in with your power, I'd like to get along with my plans. And God says, come here. Come here. I love you. And I will rescue you. Now let's talk a little bit about your plans. And slowly you come to realize you're not going to live your dream. You're not going to live your plans. God's plans are so much bigger than you've ever dreamed. And that starts to be wildly uncomfortable. And yet, the longer you walk with God, you start to love him for who he is, not what he can do for you. It takes time. Because our hearts are mistrustful. And we just kind of want our own thing. But the longer you walk with God and realize he always shops up, and is faithful and kind and wise, you start to shut your mouth and say, okay, God, what's next? Just, I don't want to be in charge anymore. But, and God, I want to follow you, but I'm really weak, and I make so many mistakes. Would you cleanse and forgive me again and just show me? And would you give me this strength? And we start to value God as the only thing that matters in our lives, and then we are profoundly changed. What happens next? We love others through God. You see, what God's plan is, it's so big. He wants to restore the entire world through his church, his people, his family. That's, that's you. <laughs> like us together, right? First Peter, we, we become the temple of God together. You're just like a brick, and I'm just like a brick. But together, we display the power and the presence of God. We display his perfection to the world. And what happens is God says, hey, I need you to love someone in particular. Someone I brought into your life. I want you to go and care for them. You say, God, I'm tired and I don't like that person and I'm scared. And God says, I can do that. I can help you with that. I made your mouth. I made your heart. I'm going to fill you up with my love. Remember all those times I've forgiven you? Yeah, God, I do. Then just forgive them the way I've forgiven you. Okay, I'm going to try. God, I blew it. I didn't get it right. I'll forgive you and cleanse you again. 
And I'm going to send you out with the humility just to admit that you blew it. You know, what, what is God doing? He is slowly loving the world through you. And in that process, this is amazing. God uses broken people to heal what is broken in the world. You say, that doesn't make any sense. No, it only makes sense because of his power coming through us. So we take his love that he gives us. And as we learn to trust and enjoy him, we share that love with other people. As he forgives us one million times a day, we learn to start forgiving the people that hurt us. Right? As we realize, oh my word, God is so patient. We learn to be patient with others and to endure. That doesn't come from us. What's going on? God is living his life through us. And then, and then what happens? When you have people who have received the love of God and are valuing God as God, as King, as Lord, trusting Him, loving Him, valuing Him, well, God starts to love through us and communities are formed. New families are formed. That's why you're here. You're only here because God showed up in a whole bunch of people's lives and they got together and said, hey, let's, let's make this formal. Let's commit to each other. Let's come up with a name so that people know that we value Jesus. That's why you're here. It's a long legacy, over 200 years old. Were all those people perfect? No. But God was present and kind. Praise God you're all here. This building was built by people that are, many of them are not here. Some of you are still here. God has done so many good, beautiful, wonderful things. Can we get excited about this? We need to be done. been kind of a whirlwind, but I just want you to see you are not trustworthy to get your life right. You are not. I think you know it. I know it. But there is a good, kind God that is pursuing you in love, can forgive, cleanse, and empower the most incredible life you can imagine. So let's talk to God. Give you a moment to talk to God about this text, about these concepts. All right? Begin by asking yourself the question, am I letting God be God or is he my personal assistant? That will not do. It will not do to the person that holds the cosmos together to say, God, I need you to do a few things for me. It's not how it works. God, what do I do for you? Right? Now, if that sounds strange, you don't know the love of God. You don't know that his love and his plan for you is infinitely better than yours. So start there. God, I want to know you and I want to love you. There is something fundamentally flawed in my heart. I don't trust you. I'm looking at your plan and saying, God, that'll hurt me, but I know that's, that's, that's my fault, God. My heart just doesn't understand. Would you help me to understand? Some of you are sitting here saying, you know what? I do love God and I do want to follow him. I just don't know what to do. God, what's next? I can't fix all the world. Would you just show me who to care for and how I'm going to pull that off? And then just simply make a note of that. Just be one or two things God will put on your heart. And ask God to give you the strength to do that. And then would you pray for our church family? Seriously, that we would stay unified. God is doing amazing things. He's changing you. He's changing me. But we're still, we're still selfish people. And we're learning together. Would you, would you pray that God would protect our family? You pray privately. Then I'll lead us together.
Father God, these are absolutely precious, glorious truths. Lord, it is so simple to explain and yet so hard to live. And we know it's impossible minus your grace, your power. So, Father, would you kindly but insistently pry our fingers off our lives? My heart is so twisted. Teach us to doubt our hearts and yet to never trust you. May we boast. May we boast in a God that loves us. May we boast in a God who never fails. And may we follow you wherever you lead. Father, we love you. And we'll follow you. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.